Welcome back to What in the World. My name is Ryan, joined by a, it seems like an ill Andre. Andre, how are you feeling? I feel sick, Ryan. I feel sick. Uh, good thing it's not COVID, because my dad and my sister had this flu bug uh, over the last week. Uh, but they PCR'd negative, so I really didn't step out of the house while they were sick. So I think I've been sort of uh, succumbed to uh, this flu bug as well. But the good thing is, it appears not to be COVID. I have not lost my taste or my sense of smell. But uh, life goes on, and I've been sleeping a lot. But I'm always here to talk about the news. Well, that's good to hear, and I'm glad that it's not COVID. But of course, being sick is never fun. For those who don't know Andre very well, he's quite the foodie. So him losing his sense of taste would be absolutely a huge blow to his lifestyle. It would be a tragedy. Yeah, it, it would really blow. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> there was some big news that Elon Musk has announced that he is buying Twitter. He certainly has. And uh, of course, there's a lot of probably conditions within this agreement, uh, this actual acquisition agreement to buy Twitter. Uh, for those of you who may not be fully aware, uh, Twitter is a public company. He would be taking it private by purchasing uh, the shares. I think that the price that I last saw was you know $54. 54 something a share um it's been it, it was trading far below that and so i mean this has drawn a lot of different opinions from a variety a wide variety of people from the left and the right to america in america to people around the world because twitter's a global platform with millions and millions of people and probably even more bots and so this has pretty kind of wide-ranging implications andre i'll kick it to you first because You've done a lot of research on social media and Twitter in particular as it kind of relates to leaders and their use of it. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the thing is with Twitter, if you listen to my episode with Sanjana Hatutowa, who was a great expert on how Sri Lanka has sort of faced the repercussions of Twitter, it tends to be a lot of countries, smaller countries in the global south, that tend to be the experimentation zones of some of the very bad effects of social media, uh, particularly some of the free speech aspects of Twitter, of Facebook, of WhatsApp, and so on. Uh, I mean, I like freedom of speech generally, but sometimes people die from freedom of speech. In Sri Lanka, we had uh, significant riots uh, that were orchestrated and organized on social media platforms. A lot of fake news that spread against, uh, you know, d predominantly Muslim communities in Sri Lanka. And there were riots that killed people. So, I mean, freedom of speech is great and all, but sometimes lives are lost because of freedom of speech. I mean, and we've known this before January 6th. We've known this before January 6th. So I am curious to see how Elon's absolutism on freedom of speech, how that'll actually, what that'll actually look like in practice, if the deal actually goes through. I mean, I think he's hinged some of this deal on uh, his uh, Tesla stocks, right? And Tesla has gone down a good amount uh, over the past week, I think since this uh, purchase was announced. And uh, Elon's also been attacking key Twitter leaders, uh, one of them being Vijaya Gade, who is uh, Twitter is basically top lawyer, their top policy person who has been very central uh, to some of the decisions on which accounts to ban, which accounts to suspend, and so on. So Elon's been attacking her quite a bit. Interestingly, he hasn't been attacking some of the other Twitter leaders. I wonder why. But it's, uh, I mean, I'm curious to see if the deal is actually going to go through. What's your take? Yeah, so... 
as far as the the actual deal, I, I you know he has the the resources to make this deal work. It's just he also has the ability to get out of it if he chooses to by kind of some of the restrictions that may be placed upon his ownership. There's also, I mean, you know, it, it's a lot different managing a, a private company than is a public company. We don't need to get into that at all during this. But I, what I will say is that Elon is attempting to make Twitter less quote unquote censored. And so, but censorship is, has kind of been implemented across social media platforms. And Andre, you got to this point in order to bring some sense of order, in order to ensure that people aren't being, you know, harassed or berated or kind of just consumed uh, by this, the kind of the vile and grossness that social media can kind of create and churn out. And so I don't know what this absolutum will actually look like. And and as experts have said, and even experts we've had on our podcast, they've they've said that this could basically allow fringe groups on either side to kind of grow and push disinformation and all of that stuff. And so I, on the one hand, you know, I'm, I'm I, I like free speech. I'm a huge advocate of free speech. I understand it, but there are certainly limitations within that. And so it's it's going to be very interesting. It, it could also be incredibly dangerous. I mean, we're already hyperpartisan in the United States. There's hyperpartisanship and polarization around the world, and so you know, opening that up just because you know you think that there may be some levels of potential discrimination on on, on some sides of the political spectrum. I mean, who knows? Uh, I mean, there's there's a really interesting episode with Jack Dorsey, Vijaya uh, from from Twitter, and Joe Rogan. I know people may have their own opinions on on Joe Rogan, but the plat the conversation on his podcast from I think a couple years ago was an interesting one about how Twitter uh, engages in its kind of content moderation. Putting all that aside, I don't know where this is going to go. I think the deal could very well go through. And if so, uh, Elon will have basically full control on how kind of Twitter changes. And that, of course, will have huge impacts on, you know, U.S. political discourse because Twitter's, a, you know, a public good, essentially, more or less. I yeah. mean, a lot of politicians use it to get to have conversation with their constituents. Yeah, and, and with Twitter, the thing is, like, sure, they banned Donald Trump after January 6th, but there's a lot of other political leaders who have made very, very terrible remarks and comments that have led to actual violence on the ground or implicitly probably led to violence on the ground that have not seen their accounts be banned or suspended. Many non-Americans have seen this uh, take place throughout. So there is a there's a lack of universality in how Twitter actually moderates and imposes its moderation and community guidelines. Uh, again, so I think, I mean, I don't know what, you know, post-Musk Twitter will look like, but pre-Musk Twitter, I mean, it had one of those big problems, right? The lack of universality. Many NGOs, as I've stated before, had tried to go to Twitter and Facebook and so on in Sri Lanka. And I think in Sri Lanka's case, it was specifically Facebook. They had tried to go and say, hey, we need to suspend certain accounts. We need to stop this. And Facebook didn't really give them, you know, a day's listen at all. Facebook only started listening once the government banned and like shut down Facebook for a week. And they were like, oh, we better, you know, get our act together. So with Twitter, again, the same thing applies. Uh, the way it's, I think, implemented its moderation guidelines has been problematic. But I don't know what post-Musk Twitter is going to look like and how the practicalities of this absolutism 
what what that's going to look like. I, I think Ryan, I'm sure you saw the European Union. I made a statement saying Elon's gonna Elon's Twitter is gonna have to follow our laws, otherwise we will put in certain uh, restrictions and penalties. Yeah, Europe has far more sh- strict <clears throat> regulations. Uh, and laws as it pertains to one speech and two kind of data use and all of that. And so, yeah, the compliance requirements for that are are, are significant. And so if it's kind of the Wild West uh, on Twitter and Twitter, will, of course, will be used in Europe, uh, there could be not only like restrictions, but also heavy fines. Uh, and no one wants that after just buying a new company for a crazy amount of money. Absolutely. 44 billion mana drop in the bucket. But also uh, another billionaire. Uh, formerly the world's richest man, Jeff Bezos, released a tweet uh, sort of insinuating that Elon Musk and China may have some ties. Because I think, uh, what's the relationship between China and Tesla, Ryan? Just so I get it clear. Yeah. So on on the one hand, uh, Tesla is seeking China out as a huge market for its its cars. Of course, I mean, there's so many people uh, in China and they are, are seeking to have more and more electric cars, but also China is uh, a big investor in Tesla. And they're also a huge uh, production and manufacturing hub um, of Tesla's products now. And so there's been a business relationship between Tesla and China, which of course, by extension, it is the Chinese government. It is the Chinese Communist Party. For anyone to do business in China, that's a a requirement and that's very well known. And so there is a relationship there. Whether or not there's significant influence, that's kind of to be determined. But I, I did see calls um, by, of course, Jeff Bezos mentioned this comment, which is, you know, it's, it's legitimate. Whether or not it's true that there's some sort of kind of potential problem is one thing, but it's a legitimate kind of issue to raise. And it could potentially be, um, Elon could maybe be subject to some sort of uh, investment review or the transaction could be reviewed by kind of US regulators if, you know, for some reason they have a reason to investigate it. And that makes you wonder how he's going to run Twitter with regards to China, right? Because China does not like Twitter. China does not like social media. Uh, as we all know. So that does raise some interesting questions. But Ryan, oh, aside from, you know, Twitter and Elon Musk, uh, you were talking to me earlier about the Ministry of Truth <laughs> that I think some of us have been hearing about on social media. I have been so furious <laughs> over the past day and a half on Twitter, of course, by the attempt to conflate George Orwell's 1984, in which he has a ministry of truth um, that kind of conveys information to the people in, in the book, um, to the creation of this disinformation governance board within DHS, which is essentially you know, being stood up to counter the spread of false information. They're primarily focusing on disinformation stemming from Russia and also disinformation targeting migrants that are seeking to reach the United States about you know, their abilities to, to get in, the ease of that. Um, because there's been a, a huge kind of new wave of migration due to misinformation. And of course, we know the <clears throat> the threats of misinformation uh, stemming from Russia. And so the, the, the D- DHS set up this board, and we don't know the full scope of what they're going to do yet, because it's a fairly new initiative being announced. Um, but they've undergone crazy scrutiny so far. And of course, you know, it could be, it could be valid. I don't think it's valid. Uh, and they've also been... <laughs> scrutinizing Nina Jankowitz, who is the new executive director. She's a disinformation expert. Uh, She wrote a a few great books about the topic and also about harassment online, particularly for women. Uh, And she's, you know, I I think, you know, a very legitimate 
um, individual and an expert in the field. I mean, she was a, a worked at the Wilson Center, um, which is a nonpartisan institution. Nonetheless, I mean, so again, they're, they're trying to say that DHS is effectively creating a quote unquote ministry of truth to say what is and what is not factual, basically having the government say what's true and what's not true. And frankly, I mean, that's a, a bunch of BS. I mean, that that is not what the Disinformation Governance Board is attempting to do. Of course, it's probably a poorly worded name for it. It's not essentially, it may, I don't think it's going to be a governance board. I think what it is, it's it's attempting to be kind of like a transparency body to to show through facts what is and what is not true. And if you're targeting Russian disinformation and migration disinformation, I, I don't see any issues there. I think there were some um, some concerns raised, particularly on the right, saying that, oh, they're trying to stymie or, or limit the speech of, of conservatives who may have, you know, <laughs> alternative facts or maybe a different perspective. Uh, but the, the conflation of this disinformation governance board with Orwell's Ministry of Truth just really pissed me off. Well, I'm sort of curious to see again how the what's this going to look like in practice, right? Like, uh, because when we talk about disinformation, there was a lot of controversy uh, again with that Twitter suspension of the New York Post's uh, Hunter Biden story. Uh, so, uh, but but with the disinformation board again, disinformation is a homeland security issue. We have talked about it for innumerable episodes uh, with Glenn Garstel, uh, with Joy G. Paul, all with so many, so many different people. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's not like George Orwell's 1984. Uh, Disinformation is just, it's a big problem. It's a big problem. I mean, it started, I mean, Sandy Hook, remember that? Alex Jones uh, caused those families who lost their children hell because he was spreading all these conspiracy theories that for some reason, a lot of people just love to believe it. I mean, disinformation led to an insurrection in this country. And so I'm all for setting up yeah. a body within the Department of Homeland Security to have a better control on what information is false and trying to give the American people proper information. It's not trying to give the American people one source of information, but it is trying to provide them with the best source of facts that they can. Yeah. I, potentially, I don't even know what the, this governance board's really going to do because the details on it are still kind of murky. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like regulating this information overall is just so difficult because. Uh, you know, tr- like there are facts and there's lies, obviously, but some things are quite gray. There, there are some bits of information that are quite gray. Uh, for example, if you go to uh, a more authoritarian leaning country or an illiberally democratic country, sometimes the governments will say that, oh, you know, these truths that you believe in are disinformation, even if they are honest truths. How, how do you determine disinformation? How do you define disinformation? I think um, it'll be a very interesting question, especially because this is now becoming a very partisan fight. Yeah, I mean, it's very unfortunate. So, I mean, we can we can leave that issue there. We'll kind of see how this new governance board develops and I guess the, the criticisms of it. Um, Andre, let's talk about Russia uh, and Ukraine, Russia's war on Ukraine in particular. Uh, there's always updates on this, but one in particular that I, I want to mention. So UN Secretary General Guterres visited both Moscow and Kiev. Uh, he was, of course, in Moscow to talk uh, with Russian policymakers and, and Putin himself about the, the conflict, trying to find some sort of end 
Of course, he wasn't very successful, but interestingly, and he launched a bomb when he visited Kiev. Exactly. While he was in Kiev and meeting with Ukrainian uh, leaders, I mean, missiles were dropped in Kiev and not that far from where Guterres was. I mean, he is the leader of the UN and Russia's still bombarding Kiev. I mean, it's, it's quite extraordinary. They don't care. They don't. No, it, it, yeah, and they don't care. We've seen a bunch of high-profile visits uh, to Kiev lately. Some leaders from the European Union, uh, Boris Johnson, notably went. Uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin both went uh, in a very secret fashion. And now the UN uh, leader has gone. Uh, but I, I, this is the first time I think that Russia actually bombed Kiev while one of those high-profile guests was there. The fact that it was the UN Secretary General, uh, interesting, right? I wonder what their MO is. Well, I think the MO is that the the impact on any potential issues there are, are limited just because the UN is the UN, and we all know, um, you know, while the UN does a lot of great things, its ability to actually act uh, in a in a uniform way, particularly when one of the permanent members is in a conflict, is just not going to happen. Versus so. bombing when Johnson was there, for example, because Johnson made quite a public visit. Blinken and Austin made a bit of a, you know, a more secret visit. Right. So anyway, so yeah, we have Guterres, that being one issue. Another interesting thing is Sweden and Finland, who are not NATO members, are slowly, actually quite quickly, slowly in the sense that it's going to take a while, but quite quickly getting their applications ready to join NATO, uh, which is quite a process. But, uh, you know, everyone's saying that's going to be a quite easy process to get them through. But it does require all 30 members to give their permission. It's so it's a, you know, you, you have to have uniformity in this decision to accept new members into NATO. And ostensibly, I think they, they get it. I don't see any issues or any countries that may actually object to it other than, you know, maybe maybe Hungary, um, also potentially, you know, Serbia. Um, but who knows? I mean, the, the countries with quite close ties to Russia may have some sort of kind of second thought on doing that. But I can't imagine that actually uh, is prevented. And I think all, all members will agree and accede to uh, Sweden and Finland joining, which is crazy. I mean, these are Finland's right on Russia's border. I mean, and they, Russia and Finland have not had the best of relationship throughout history. And so that's huge. I would freak out. Yo, like, I mean, look at yeah. what happened to Ukraine. One of the so-called, uh, you know, pain points that Russia stated when they declared their invasion was that they were afraid of Ukraine joining NATO. And now, guess what? They've caused Finland and Sweden to want to join NATO. Uh, because these countries, they want to join NATO because they're afraid that Russia is going to come invade them and bomb them and do what it's done to Ukraine. Uh, Again, it's important to note that the U.S. wasn't necessarily hunky-dory with uh, taking Ukraine into NATO uh, over the past decade, right? But Ukraine wanted to join NATO just because NATO offers protection, because Russia is generally a very aggressive neighbor. It's obvious. And for some reason, people don't seem to understand this on the right and the left. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, it, it certainly makes a lot of sense to kind of the, the people who follow this, but I think it's important to note that at the end of the day, like this, you know, Ukraine and all these other countries in the neighborhood that are now, of course, rightly so worried for the sovereignty of their own countries, right? This is not their fault. And I can't get this kind of enough because I've seen too much peddling of the other kind of narrative that somehow Russia has to be defending itself in this instance. I mean, that's insane. 
I mean, this is clearly Russian aggression. And these countries are just are, are acting out of necessity now. You know, of course, Ukraine fighting back uh, and other countries. Yeah. And other countries in the neighborhood trying to find um, some sort of deterrence mechanism. And NATO is a great one. Yeah, NATO is absolutely a great one, right? An attack on one is an attack on all. Russia is very less likely to attack a NATO member because that means you're at war with Britain, France, Germany, and the United States. Very powerful countries. Yeah. So in in addition to kind of that happening in the background, uh, this Russian gas strategy of essentially requiring countries to pay for any natural resources and rubles um, seems to be impacting both Russia and Europe. Of course, some countries are poning up and paying Russia in rubles, but the EU, which is essentially attempting to completely phase out Russian oil, is now seeing rising uh, gas prices within within the bloc. And so, I mean, this is problematic. Um, it's it's never great when you see implications like this. But of course, this was expected. We knew that gas prices would rise within the European Union. And we're also seeing inflation rise within Germany. And I mean, these, these are things that are, are consequences of, of the EU's policy. But I think they're, they're necessary. I mean, while at the end of the day, banning Russian oil imports into the European Union will probably not prevent Russia or stop Russia, um, what it does is it, it turns up the heat domestically within Russia, which of course could have implications. We don't know whether or not it, it's, it's successful, but I think it's the right thing to do. I think it's the proper policy. And so um, I, it, it's now kind of up to the European leaders and within the European Union itself to figure out how they can move forward and find other avenues of providing for their, their natural resource needs. Uh, because I, I don't anticipate anytime soon that a lot of countries, and particularly EU, are going to return to Russia as a source for its resources. Yeah, I think this big lesson, right? The energy dependence on Russia, uh, at least for many countries in Europe, right? Like this is the big lesson that uh, they're going to take with them for a while longer. So yeah. Right. Is there anything else happening in the news that's notable? Not, of course, a lot of stuff's notable, but uh, things, you know, I may have missed amidst my flu and so on. Um, nothing crazy, Andre. Other than I'll just say one thing is that Liechtenstein, which is this very small European kind of princely state, uh, has had quite a kind of a an event occur on the the international stage uh, on Tuesday. They got the UN General Assem- uh, UN General Assembly to pass a resolution that it put forward, which essentially obliges the five permanent members of the Security Council. China, France, Russia, the UK, and the US, it requires them to justify their vetoes. And so, of course, the, the permanent members uh, are, are allowed to veto any um, UN Security Council resolution, which prevents a lot of things from passing, particularly any sort of peacekeeping operation that they want to engage in. It prevents you know, the distribution of resources that may be counter to one of the P5's you know, members. And so, China and Russia are not very amused by this. Uh, you know, it requires them to say why uh, they are vetoing a, a particular measure. Of course, they can concoct some sort of diplomatic way to say why they're vetoing it, but it's just kind of another hoop or hurdle that these countries now have to go through when they're when they're vetoing. And of course, you know, China and Russia have a lot of vetoes. I mean, hey, we we vetoed things as well. <laughs> oh yeah, offering uh, too many explanations depending on like you know which allies of ours. <laughs> Uh, have less than perfect human rights records, right? But uh, also, I feel like the, 
the UN Security Council, again, is a bit problematic, as we're seeing, right? The UN Human Rights Council is a bit problematic, uh, because there are certainly countries that don't care for either concept who are on these councils. Oh, no, that's absolutely a fair criticism of the UN. And that's one of the major problems is that some countries, uh, those who are not particularly, you know, huge proponents of democracy or human rights or, you know, freedom and fairness are becoming quite powerful within the UN and, you know, UN subsidiary institutions. And so uh, it's, it's very problematic when you have Iran on the Human Rights Council or when you have China leading some kind of econ- or environmental initiative, uh, given kind of the problems within there. Of course, you know, every country is allowed to be within these bodies, um, but it does kind of raise the, the question as to whether or not the UN is an effective international institution. And, you know, we've, we've, we've talked about this before. It is one of the kind of central issues of understanding IGOs and kind of moving forward in, into a way or a world in which these institutions actually do something for kind of the greater good on a large scale because they do great things on a small scale with, you know, the food program and humanitarian aid um, and protecting cultural sites. But um, kind of on the macro level, not not a lot being done. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess that's one of the pitfalls of getting a world organization when there's so many countries in the world that don't necessarily agree with your worldview or have their own interests, right? So, yeah. Well, anyway, Ryan, we're at the 26-minute mark. Uh, yeah, I mean, anything else? Um, nothing crazy, Andre, but I will say, you know, you, you've been, you've had a great series of episodes come out that you've kind of been spearheading, which have been fantastic, um, kind of about the role of one, on one hand, you know, media and and social media and information, particularly in, in the global, in, in the global South. Um, and that's kind of inspired me to kind of embark on my own little kind of series that I'll shepherd through. And so uh, that's going to be my summer project. Um, more details will be released as I create them. Um, but yeah, if anyone has any ideas, uh, particularly for that, I'm always you know open to that. And of course, Andre and I are always open to some of your feedback, getting your uh, ideas, uh, recommendations on potential guests, potential themes, um, pictures, no, and all of that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're we're always you know we want to engage with you all uh, who week over week like to listen to us, and we we very much appreciate it. And so, um, anyway, we'll leave it there. Uh, I have nothing else. If you have nothing else, nothing else. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you all very much uh, for listening to this week's edition of what in the world. Uh, Make sure to rate review and subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at burn bag pod until next week.